Hey, thanks for tuning into The Scoop. I hope you and your family are safe during these unprecedented times. Before we dive into today's episode, I want to take a minute to give a shout out to our sponsor. If you're building in the blockchain space, then I want you to know about a company called Blockset. I've been speaking with their team closely, and I have no doubt that they are going to enable the next wave of developers and business leaders to build amazing applications. Blockset offers accessible data from all the major chains through easy to use API. It acts as your hosted blockchain infrastructure. It ultimately enables high quality apps to be built at a fraction of the cost at a fraction of the time. Go sign up for a free account at blockset.com and start building today. Stay tuned for more information later in the episode. Ladies and gentlemen, happy Monday. At least I, I think it's Monday, right? Not 100% sure on, on the day of the week these days, but I am your host, Frank Chaparro, and The Scoop is back from the Easter weekend. And I mean, it's it's really crazy. We can't turn our attention away from the macro picture these days, especially from the Fed. If you look at the central bank balance sheet, it's really freaking remarkable and, and more dramatic than what we saw during the financial crisis. And it's interesting as they work aggressively to shore up the economy amidst the spread of this coronavirus, um, we are seeing it go further than ever before. Unveiling last week programs to lend directly to municipalities, cities, mid-side businesses, and even large corporate junk bond purchases for investment-grade companies that have recently been hit hard or that are going to be hit hard. Some people are calling these actions creative. Um, Goldman Sachs today, the investment bank, said the swift action could prevent further losses in stocks, but there are louder arguments out there in the world that the worst has yet to come and that the Fed's actions could trigger massive inflation or politicalization of the Fed. I think there's some good arguments out there about that. But that brings us to today's guest, who I'm very excited about, Raul Powell, a former macro investor and the founder of Real Vision. If you don't know about Real Vision, you really should. It's an incredible site dedicated to unpacking a lot of these topics through video interviews. Raul, we really appreciate you coming on the show. I guess the best place to start, there was this Goldman Sachs note, uh, your former employer, actually. They said that the bottom could be in. Nobody really knows, but you're taking a less rosy approach. You think we might be hurtling towards a depression. In fact, what do you think you're picking up on that they're not? Well, you know, one is in terms of phasing and timing. You know, basically when the market's at kind of 50 vol in equities, it's basically the market throwing its hands in the air saying it's got no idea where it's going. So, you know, Goldman's view is about as valid as anybody's right here and the market understands that. And so the question is, what is this event? Is this event a short-term supply and demand shock of massive magnitude and a return to normal following thereafter? Or is this event something bigger? So what it means to me in that context is, okay, we know this is the largest negative quarter of GDP probably the world has ever seen in any measurable way. But what goes forward from here? And this is key. The market is very quick to say, look at the Fed, look at the governments around the world, look at the central banks, they're flooding the markets. Well, the chances are we return with inflation and pent-up demand. 
which is the classic mean reversion model of, of economies. But that's all based on a single premise, which is that this is a three-month event. And that what is happening now from the central banks and governments is stimulus. So when I look at this, I think, how is this possible that this is stimulus when we, from peak to trough in the equity market, we wiped off 50% of GDP from the equity market valuation alone. We wiped off a significant amount from credit and the entire plumbing of the market froze. We then wiped off something like 7.5% of annualized GDP from the economy. So add all these things together and you really don't stand still until you inject, I don't know, call it 15 trillion into the economy. And we just haven't done that. So even though the Fed have done huge things, they're basically just trying to get the market to function. This is not stimulus. You know, stimulus would be in effect if, let's say, GDP was growing at 1%, things were slow and they wanted to boost it. Then you add a bunch of quantitative easing and other policy measures and that would help stimulate the economy. This is not stimulus. This is papering up the cracks. And same with the government. What they're doing is saying, well, you've lost your income and that business hasn't been able to function. So we will try and backstop some of the cash flows for these businesses or individuals, but not all of them. So all it's trying to do is paper over the cracks and hope. So everybody's bet is this goes away quickly. So my question is not what happens now. I think the market probably goes down again, but I don't know. But it's what happens later that matters the most. If the economy doesn't reopen, which I don't think it will, because we can see Singapore, we can see Japan, we can see China and all the other countries. If that stays in a semi-lockdown situation or a rolling lockdown where it opens and closes, things like restaurants aren't allowed to operate with, you know, with anything less than huge social distancing, a maximum number of people at tables, all that kind of stuff. All of these things, plus the behavioral output of people who are scarred by this event, means that growth is probably going to be negative in year-on-year -year terms for the rest of the year. And when you've got a world so full of debt, that, to me, makes it smack of a massive insolvency event to come, where the cash flows needed by businesses and people to pay their debts, just pay off or service their debts is not available. Well, Raul, I think I think it's interesting to think about what the long-term implications will be, but turning to the current landscape, right? Goldman is looking at these three things, the relief in health data, strong aggressive fiscal stimulus, strong monetary approach. You talked about the stimulus we've seen not being enough. If the health data though, Let's up. We've seen what could be an apex in New York. What do we need to see on the fiscal side to really match the aggressiveness of this virus and this health crisis? Well, for starters, bond yields need to be at zero, and they're not yet. So, you know, that's a start. I also think that the bond market will go negative in rates. I know nobody believes that, but I believe it will happen. I also believe that 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 um, narrative about the data is wrong. You're just looking at New York. You've got the rest of the country to deal with, and many of the parts of the country and around the world is later stage. And if you look what happened in Singapore and Japan and a number of other places, it can come back too. So making an assumption that, oh, the data's better, we've reached peak virus, I think is a false narrative. And people have to be very cautious with drawing conclusions like that. 
Yeah. I, well, I think that the market has been following the health data and seeing, looking at what possibly could be a turning point and getting a little more bullish than we were. But we also have earnings coming up. And it'd be interesting to see whether the market starts to take its notes from that as opposed to an, a sort of flattening of that curve. I think the market, you've seen it with how bad the economic data is. The market, you could basically throw anything at the market. You could have said unemployment went to 50% of the market wouldn't care because basically it's thrown its hands in the air saying, well, this is the worst event ever. So whatever the numbers are, they're terrible. But let's see if we can look through this. So it's going to be the same with earnings. You know, every company is going to throw everything into their numbers, discount as much as possible, and the market's not going to care because it already expects it. They say, well, it's all in the price now. So it's positive. That's interesting. So you're sort of saying that all of that is going is has been priced in. Correct. It's what's going forward that's not been priced in. That's always how you you must trade macro is you have to live in the future. You never trade the present data. Trading the present data is just trading what everybody else knows. How do you trade that second surge of infections after the economy potentially reopens? Well, the easy money in the in the COVID trade was earlier on when you saw what was coming and you panicked before everybody else. But now the market has to run its narrative, which is where the bulls are going to put the onus on the bears to prove their point. And so that means we could chop around, maybe we could go back to the low, we bounce back up again. That kind of ugly, difficult market environment for anybody, I think is a likely outcome. But over time, it's a matter of, does my narrative of solvency and a slower economy and a slower rebound have credence. And the way you'll know that is the bond market will tell you. The bond market, if it is, the bond market will go to negative interest rates, particularly like at two years and maybe into five years, as they start pricing in a solvency event. And usually the bond market's right. The bond market was right all the way through this COVID thing. It saw it well in advance. It had also priced in the slowdown of the economy well before all of this. Mm -hmm. You've talked about reaching that insolvency phase and to put it in your own words, you'd said, I think we are about to face the largest insolvency event in recorded history. This is where the narrative will diverge from the reality. I think the reality is here that this is a longer event than anybody understands. So this idea that if you think about when the vaccine will come online, when and to what degree will a a second surge of infections, when that will happen, no one's thinking about that, or at least a large swath of the market isn't. How do we enter that insolvency phase, or rather, how will that insolvency phase unfold in your view? So it's going to unfold at a number of levels because we've got debt bubbles everywhere. So at the household level, clearly mortgages are going to be somewhat difficult to pay. Everyone's got some mortgage relief right now, but is that going to go into the next quarter and the quarter after that? Who's going to be able to pay for that if that's the case? So that's unlikely. So mortgage is going to come a struggle. Ortho loans and student loans, right? They're the multi-trillion dollar bubbles that are outstanding at, at household level and credit card debts aren't great either. So those you'll see. But then you'll see, you know, companies like Ford and all of these triple Bs, if they don't generate cash flow, then they're going to get downgraded. And they're going to get downgraded to junk. And this is one of the reasons the Fed are buying junk because they understand the size of the downgrades to come. And they're trying to stabilize the junk bond market, which is currently a trillion dollar market, but if all of the triple Bs that I think get downgraded, maybe a quarter of them, then there's about another trillion of junk to come into the market. 
And considering there's no increased amount of money to buy it, it would essentially half the price of all junk bonds. So th this is an enormous problem. Um, so that's that. And then you think of the small businesses. I have no understanding of how a restaurant's going to get in, back into business. You can extend them more credit, but extending more credit does not solve a debt problem and does not solve a solvency problem. It solves a liquidity problem. So that is a big issue there. And I don't know how many of these small business can recover from this. And nobody knows how this is going to impact our behavior. I mean, if we reopen in two months, three months, how many folks are going to be rushing into restaurants after three months of getting used to cooking at home? And that doesn't even factor in the fact that a lot of people won't have enough money to be eating out after this is all sort of done, at least in that initial phase. So it's very easy to look at the future. We just go to China and Singapore. They were early with the virus and see what they're up to. Okay, so in China, you have social distancing in restaurants. So that means they've reduced the number of tables by 50 to 60% in a restaurant. So that already drives margins negative for restaurants because they just don't have high margins. So that's really bad. Then if you go to the restaurant, you have to have a temperature checked, you have to wear a mask, et cetera, et cetera. So it doesn't become the pleasurable social experience that we all understand restaurants to be. So yes, you might do it for a novelty, but the marginal propensity of you to go to a restaurant has been massively reduced. And we're seeing the same in Singapore too, where restaurants have social distancing, it makes it very difficult, et cetera. So that applies to most businesses. I mean, who's ever going to go to a music festival or a concert in the next six to nine months nobody who's going to throw conferences nobody because nobody's going to go but even if they did go and you got 50 percent, well that's a 50 percent reduction in revenues and if you've got any debt a 50 percent reduction in revenues is a ticket to bankruptcy no i think that's a that's a salient point ryan this is a very different conversation than the one we had with tom lee at the beginning of the month um he was talking about now is the opportunity to start looking for gems and diamonds in the rough in terms of asset managers and the like. We had Ray Dalio, who is still licking the wounds of his cash is trash call, doubling down on it. But that's the question I have for you. Thinking about where you position yourself right now, does Ray Dalio's argument that cash is trash, does Lee's argument that now is the time to be looking for gems in the stock market. Are either of those reasonable in your view, given what we've talked about? Yes, because I think that there is an extended period of time where the bull narrative or the optimistic narrative can take hold. So even if uh, Tom Lee's right, and even if the market falls back to the low and then bounces again, accumulating high quality uh, companies that you want to invest in, that's always been a decent strategy. And if they're cheaper and, and you've got good fundamental reasons why you want to buy them, great. And that makes sense. But it's this optimism phase that could run for a while. So, you know, I've not really been net short the markets for a while now because I, I believe that there's an optimism phase. I'm, I'm long bonds. And this optimism phase means that I can still go with that market narrative for the time being until I see what I think is the true narrative appearing and then that will give me the opportunity to invest or protect myself to the downside so you know right now my narrative and the optimist narrative have coincided even though i think potentially we go down a bit lower first it's irrelevant to me because i think the next two or three months is kind of a sideways a bit further up to sideways move 
But after that, that's when I think the macro backdrop becomes extremely important again. Raul, you brought up something that Frank and I and, and others at the block have been reflecting on. Uh, and we've seen people debate, and it's really not, it's a, kind of a one-sided debate, but it, it goes back to what you said about the Fed having to step in and purchase junk bonds just because there's no real buyer. And we're seeing a large swath of investment grade downgrade into junk. In your view, are, is there really anything that the Fed can be doing that they're not? I know there's there's been strong pushback into stepping across this line and being willing to purchase these paper from these corporates. But if you were Powell, like, is that a line you'd be willing to cross? Like, Is there really anything else they can do? You know, I don't know the answer to that. You know, everybody uses the they should, could, would language around stuff. And everyone has a big debate about it. And how I look at this, particularly in this kind of situation, is regardless of what I think it should be, what we are trading is what is. So the Fed are buying junk bonds. What does that mean? As opposed to, and I can see, you know, Twitter's alive with the Fed shouldn't buy junk bonds. Great. You can have that debate all day on Twitter. Makes no difference. What is actually happening is the Fed are buying junk bonds. So what does that mean? Those are the more important questions I find in the whole analysis is ignoring what your own personal opinions are. It is what it is. What it tells me is their propensity to increase their balance sheet over time is higher than most people even imagine. One thing we know is that the pension system is in deep, deep trouble, both at you know corporate, state, etc., everywhere. Now, are the Fed going to try and support that? Because these are going to be net sellers of equities and credit over time anyway, potentially. So how much, and we've seen the ECB do this, how much of the securities market are they going to end up buying as we have a transfer of assets from baby boomers into who? There's no buyers. So the buyer ends up having to be the Fed. Is it really that simple as what is the Fed buying by it? Or like, how do you... How do you pick winners and no. losers if the Fed's having to do that as well? No, no, I don't think that works. Um, it's not that. It's 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 kind of it's difficult because there's no easy answer. Is what are they trying to tell you? What they're trying to tell you is that for some reason they are terrified of the junk bond market freezing up. So what is that to do with? Is that to do with shale oil patch? That's part of it. Is it to do with the pension system? That's probably part of it. Is it to do with the collateral system where some of this is being used as collateral? I, you know, I don't know. But what I do know is people are kind of borrowing money against it. If you think of the ECB, they've basically taken any old junk you can throw at them. You know, IOU on the back of a cigarette packet, they'll take it and give you cash for it. And that's basically trying to allow money to get back into the financial system to paper over the cracks. So the Fed aren't trying necessarily yet to support the high yield bond market. But they're trying to give liquidity to all the dealers who've been sold all the junk because the dealers got got it and they need to get it off and turn it into capital or if not they can't apply that capital into the running of markets so there's there's real structural issues here so what do you think some of the second order effects of that's going to be you you talked about the cacophony of noise that we see on twitter related to the fed the ample number of memes that have us um, cracking up all the time at the block specifically, right? The burr, burr, burr meme. But a lot of what's aggravating people, especially in the crypto world, is this idea that we're going to see a surge in inflation as a result of some of this stuff. You're very much in the 
deflation camp. So talk about, I mean, what we're looking at, right, is inflation expectations 10 years out at 10-year lows. Why is it going to be different this time in terms of this action maybe resulting in deflation as opposed no, to... No, because if you look at the Bank of Japan, who've done the most monetary printing of all, the ECB, then you look at all of the other QE, none of them generated inflation. So what do you have to do to generate inflation if the BOJ haven't managed it? And they own 60-odd percent, maybe 70% of their entire bond market. So people, particularly people who own Bitcoin or gold, jump from point A to point Z immediately. Oh, look, printing presses, hyperinflation. We're all going to be rich, protect ourselves with our new assets. That's just wrong. There is a process by which it needs to follow first. The process by which is massively deflationary. You have the largest generation of retirees in all recorded history that have less in their pensions than they ever expected, and they have to sell all of their assets, which is going to drive down the returns on their pension. So they don't have enough money, so the consumption of the baby boom generation going forwards is really going to be low. And Japan and Europe have seen that problem. You then have an insolvency issue with so much debt. Well, debt generally is deflationary in a low growth world. And then you've got velocity of money, which is grinding down towards zero. And you can tell because the Fed are going to have to throw as much money into the plumbing as possible because the plumbing doesn't work. That doesn't even take into account the fact that the money's not being lent out anywhere. So none of this is inflationary. Now, when you extrapolate out into the future, can you see the erosion of fiat money, which is different to the hyperinflationary argument? Everyone goes, money printing, Zimbabwe. You know, and it's just not going to be that. What it's going to be is a relative devaluation of currencies overall, with the dollar doing better than others, because everybody is short the dollar, and to the general benefit of hard currencies on a relative basis, such as gold and Bitcoin. So we don't need to worry about this hyperinflation narrative. Could that ever happen? Well, the only way I could ever see that happening is potentially if there was a debt jubilee, they wrote off all of the debts in one go. Could that be a hyperinflationary outcome? Possibly. Well, now that Sanders is out of the question here, uh, that might not happen. But I can feel Ryan. I can't see him because we're hundreds of miles apart, but I can feel his smiling uh, cheek to cheek because it's something that he's been talking about ad nauseum at the block. Um, there are a few different directions we can go in to here. You talk about the dollar. You've, you've said that it's what's going to break the global system, but I want to stick to the Fed really quickly. Everyone likes to hate on the Fed. It's kind of a popular thing, but they're really damned if they do, damned if they don't. If you were Powell, poor, poor Jay Powell, right? Um, what would you be doing differently? Uh, I don't think there is anything. Yeah, you know, you, you try and lower mortgage rates further. You know, the problem is, is the only outcome you've got in a situation like this is trying to put liquidity in a system, which all of us hate because we've got too much debt in the system anyway. But the problem is, is given that same deck of cards every time, you play the same hand. Because what else can you do? Because that is the system we've got now. You know, we're not in a low-debted world. And so, you know, I don't know the answer. People say, well, just let it all burn. The answer is always, if I can let it burn slowly, let it simmer, it's better than letting it burn in one go because we're too late. It's like a brush fire, you know? 
before you know it, like Australia, you have an enormous unmanageable brush fire. And that's the situation we're in now, but they're trying always to suppress the volatility, but suppress volatility almost always leads to hypervolatility. So it's really difficult. And I don't think, I mean, Japan did do it. They've managed to elongate a financial crisis and a debt deflation and, a, and an aging demographic, and they managed to drag it out over 30 years without blowing up. But they're still not at the end of it yet. The balance sheet is enormous as a percentage of GDP. So we don't know how this game is going to get played out, whether it's going to pl get played out over an even longer run or it's, this is going to be the clearing event. My guess is there's a decent probability that this is the clearing event. If you're a listener of The Scoop or follow The Block, then you know I am super excited about the future of crypto adoption, especially on the enterprise side. Our sponsor, Blockset, is not only helping to push development at the grassroots level with their multi-chain API, but also at the institutional level. Blockset is built by BRD, the first crypto wallet in the App Store from 2014, and one of the largest in the space today. They've taken the architecture and the knowledge they've gained over the past six years to create Blockset, a robust, reliable, and strategic B2B offering for developers and enterprises. Blockset is enabling banks and other major financial institutions to interface and build with crypto assets at light speed. See just how simple it is by visiting Blockset.com and sign up for a free account today. I want to walk back to uh, the comments on loss and faith and fiat, global fiat and money. You've said recently that the dollar is what is going to break the global system. So too much dollar debt and not enough dollars globally. And a dollar specifically in, say, the U.S. is not fungible with a dollar in, say, London um, or Asia. And so there's a lot to unpack there, but I'm wondering if you can kind of walk through that thesis and why that, why that impacts your thesis on gold and Bitcoin. Yes. So the issue here is the dollar is too dominant in the global economy. Basically, all world trade is in dollars and most of the world's borrowing is in dollars. So you've got a one currency system, essentially, because nobody wants any other currency to trade in. And because the dollar had also been relatively, had low interest rates and was non-volatile for an extended period after the last financial crisis, debts rose massively. So there's about 13 trillion of these debts uh, owned by kind of global corporations in US dollars. So that's a problem. As soon as earnings come under pressure, so trade tariffs and the slowing economic cycle after the Fed raised rates, that meant that cash flows were not as available. And what happened is the dollar started exploding higher. And it's like a game of musical chairs. There's a bunch of people, in, generally in emerging markets, running around these musical chairs, and the music stops and somebody takes one of the chairs away. And there's always somebody left not managing their debts, whether it's Turkey, whether it's Argentina, etc., Venezuela. As the game goes on, the banks in a slow growth or negative growth world become less desiring of lending out. And these are the international banks, non-US banks based abroad, because they can get a fixed supply of dollars. They need it for their own balance sheet. So they start becoming more careful in who they give their money to. So they give it to the better creditors. So you're taking away another chair. So what's happening is this just ends up being a starvation of dollars. What happens is currencies collapse when there's a starvation of dollars or companies collapse. So that's what's going on on an international level. 
the Japanese banking system and the European banking system are badly impaired and they are not able to access the dollars they need, hence why these dollar swap lines are coming from the Fed to the central bank and lends into the banking system. But that's papering over their cracks and they're not relending out to the corporate sector that needs it. But the issue here is somebody like Deutsche Bank or HSBC, a dollar that's from the euro dollar market, I offshore, is non-fungible with a dollar in the US. So the Fed can print tons of money, inject it into the banking system, and HSBC uh, US can take cash, but it can't lend it um, to the UK or Hong Kong operations because of bank regulations. So basically, there's no monetary mechanism that flows through around the world now. And that's why these dollar swap lines are put in place. But the problem is, is dollar swap lines are from central bank to central bank. They are just a line of credit. Somebody still has to pay off the debt. And that's the problem. All the cash flow is gone. So the chances are that it keeps driving up the dollar as people default or scramble to buy their dollars back. And that pushes the dollar higher and higher and higher. And generally speaking, what it does is it increases the chance, not only did the dollar eat all of its competitors, but now it's about to eat itself as it becomes far too strong for the global economy to deal with. Much like the dollar did on the gold standard in the 1930s, where the dollar was way too strong, the US attracted all of the gold, and eventually the US had to devalue by 40% from gold because the dollar was overvalued. If we're hitting a Bretton Woods inflection point right now where the existing system is about to be completely broken up as you're describing, what do we move to then next? Is it something akin to Libra or a synthetic stable coin backed digital currency um, that we've seen Mark Carney talk a lot about? What is the next step? Yes, I think Mark Carney Benoit Correa of the ECB and a bunch of others have said the same thing. They've said, listen, the dollar system's unusable now, so we're going to have to go to something else. And something else has to be, there is no other reserve currency, so you're going to have to create a reserve currency for trade, which is less volatile and is broader based. So it's going to have to be a basket. So they're all talking about digital, so to change the dollar plumbing. So some sort of basket of digital currencies, which is basically the Libra idea too. So somewhere within this, I think there will be digital currencies that all the central banks have, and there'll be baskets created for trade, be they private sector baskets like Libra, or maybe an IMF basket for official trade, and people will be able to choose. And it becomes interesting what goes in that basket, because maybe some of them could have Bitcoin. And that may entice small economies to move to kind of crypto-like currencies that are less inflationary, and maybe they get rewarded. But people don't actually want too strong currencies either. So it's a very complicated game, the currency market. But I think they're going to move to something that has to be a broader basket to make it easier for everybody. How that works in monetary mechanism terms, I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, it's so fascinating. There are so many, every answer provides a new direction we can go into. I guess let's focus on Libra a little bit because I think we're anticipating, we've heard rumors swirling around about an update to their white paper coming out soon, and it might actually come out when this podcast gets released. But this idea of a company or a group of companies getting together to create what could be the new reserve uh, currency versus governments, what do you think of that construct? What it's telling you is not it's going to be a reserve currency, but they just set the stage and let the genie out of the bottle that anybody can create a currency. So, you know, Bitcoin was you know, obviously the start of that. 
But now these guys are saying, well, we can create currency baskets for trade using basic asset management to do it. And therefore anybody can. So Google could have their own. The oil markets could have their own. I mean, there is no limit to what could happen. And the private sector could have their own. There could be independent currencies like Bitcoin. There could be corporate currencies that are blended. There could be anything. What is telling us that everything we understand about money and exchange is about to change, potentially? So in a way, this, this crisis is hastening the impact of what Bitcoin set out to do or what the Bitcoin white paper set out to do since the last financial crisis. That's yeah, precisely right. And this is what all the people have been working on the Ethereum projects and all the things and the, you know, all of the different areas. I call it this hive mind that's working towards building a new financial architecture. I mean, everybody's been working on this because they knew where it's going. They were just waiting for that shoe to drop. And now the shoe has dropped in the form of this, you know, insidious virus that's, that's gripped every country in the world. But maybe the time is, this is the only thing that could have beaten the central banks. And so it happened. You know, just by chance, so it happens. The black swan that could beat the central banks versus a normal recession has just hit. But there's also this weird dichotomy that I'm noticing. Yes, this should be the perfect opportunity given everything that you laid out. But when I get on the phone with non-independent private bankers, financial advisors, for instance, their wealthier clients aren't indicating an increase of interest in Bitcoin, at least in this moment. So that's been super fascinating to me. You've seen flows go down, or rather trading volumes go down at CME. You need to understand who their clients are. So the average UBS ultra high net worth client is an 86-year-old. That's wild. So this is why there's a We'll have to get that back back check. That's insane. Yeah. And even that wrong by three years, it's a very it's an it's over 80. So So that's why. I bet if you went to other family offices which were generally skewed younger, their propensity to own Bitcoin. I mean, I don't know many family offices that don't own Bitcoin, but I do understand that, you know, all of the private bankers, it's not the thing that they sell because there's no fees in it for them. Plus they're selling what the house is telling them to sell. Of course. Yeah. It's not a fair game. There are definitely, to your point, Raul, there is a much stronger appetite among the family office crowd. But I think at least since 2017, this idea of what institutional capital is supposed to look like has been sort of equated to the financial advisor, the bulge bracket banks. Do we need that capital to come into Bitcoin and into the crypto markets to expedite, well, not expedite, but facilitate this sort of transfer from the current dollar-dominated global financial system to one dominated by something else, something digital. See, I, again, I think there's a bit of this inherent thing that people do to go from A to Z. Oh, all assets must go across. Well, what happens if the pension fund structure of baby boomers plays itself out? And that's a massive shrinking of global assets. And what happens if the younger generation had a marginal propensity to increase that allocation to cryptocurrencies? So over time, you get continued adoption. It doesn't have to be a flick of the switch that suddenly all the asset managers get it. I think in the world that everybody imagines, asset management firms won't exist. It's going to be a different structure and different types of firms. So I'm not sure 
that hoping that, you know, BlackRock switch into Bitcoin is what everybody should, should be hoping for. I think just over time, it will happen. And that is the better way for it to happen. What you don't want is this market swollen with institutional capital, with leveraged products and all of the other bloody mess that we've created in the financial markets over the last 40 years. So kind of let it do its thing. I kind of want to shift gears. Uh, something that we've been quiet on that I think is worth talking about, and I know Raul's mentioned it in several videos, is where is China's place in all of this, both from what the world looks like when the dust settles from a macro perspective, but also with their plans for uh, their own digital currency? Yeah, I mean, look, the Chinese have the biggest problem of all. They owe more dollars, their corporations do, than any other country in the world. So they have a huge issue with a dollar shortage. They also don't like the fact that the US owns the SWIFT payment system and that it's a dollar-based system because that's threatening to them and it gives the US the ultimate power, maybe even more power than having the military because the military, the two militaries are unlikely to go into direct conflict. But financial conflict, sure. And the US holds that trump card. Russia's proven this over time and has made this very clear is it has to move away and the world has to move away from this. Now, obviously, it's not in the U.S. interests, but the U.S. also can't suffer a much stronger dollar. So it's a really complicated world. So I think China is very much so trying to move this all forwards to something different. What their vision of it is, well, I'm not sure that will play out either. But somewhere amongst this, I think there's going to be a regional fragmentation where digital currencies and baskets become more normal. And it becomes very easy to trade between the two. Do you hear that or see that within the macro and FX community that you share conversations with? Or is it still early? It's still early. I mean, everyone's still grappling with narratives. And the problem is with geopolitics, everybody goes, well, I've heard from some official in China. Right. Right. So much of it is noise. So it's really hard to filter out what is noise and what is not. So I kind of keep away from it. I kind of acknowledge it, say, look, I've got my own theory on this. I have no idea because none of us actually know unless you're speaking to Chi directly and he said, this is what we're going to do. Everything else is hearsay in geopolitics. Well, markets, that's different because the market has the truth embedded in it somewhere and it will vote towards it. So, you know, China's not a freely floating market, but we'll be able to see it elsewhere. And so China's role is complicated. And the answer is, is I don't know. And I think anybody who says they do know is lying. Yeah. Unless they're talking to Chi. <laughs> yeah. Ryan, I think it might be interesting to just talk about Real Vision and um, what it's been like to sort of run what is effectively a, a media business during these interesting times. I feel like so many of us are learning things about the markets, trying to wrap our head around what's going on. And as we were talking about before we turned the mics on, video has been a really powerful way for folks to engage with the market as it's sort of acting more volatile than than we've seen since the financial crisis. So I guess the, the question is, what's it been like? I mean, it, it must be, this is the moment we're all waiting for, right? As market commentators or journalists or producers of content, how's business? I mean, it's literally exploded. Don't forget, we set up for this. We started Real Vision to democratize the very best financial intelligence because of what had happened in 2008, when people would come up to me in the street. And I was very much part of that whole situation, knowing 
from the inside how bad it was. And people come to me and say, why didn't we know? And that was really bad. I just thought this is not right. It's morally wrong that some people know and other people don't. So I just thought, well, I'd really like to level the playing field for everybody. Now, I was very much an insider, you know, I was a hedge fund guy and all my friends were hedge fund guys. And, you know, I knew what was going on and I knew, you know, the investment bank research and I knew that nobody got access to the same information. They were basically buying newsletters written by people who've never had a Wall Street career. I'm like, this is crazy. But we started it and realized that video also was the future of everything because it engages people like no other format. And so that was an easy decision to start Real Vision for this. And it's come along and people have understood that this is what we were set up for. Not to be bearish, but to tell people and give them a broad base of understanding of what the hell is going on, what it matters and where it could lead to and why it's happened. So that kind of contextualized analysis is massively missing in the video media because, you know, CNBC is all about news and news is now commodity. I get my news from Twitter. I don't go anywhere else any longer. I don't even read the Financial Times anymore. I just go to Twitter. But analysis, okay, that's a different game. So Real Vision positioned itself in a space that nobody else was in, which was analysis driven by peer-to-peer interviews of the world's most famous asset managers, hedge fund managers, strategists, analysts, interviewed by a peer generally, where they have an immersive, engaging conversation where it's not about trying to catch somebody out or disprove them. It's about letting them talk. So we can all have maximum input from a number of different voices to help us make our own minds up. And that's been incredibly powerful. And, you know, people have flocked to us as kind of a source of truth. I mean, there is no truth in this world, but to have a broad, unbiased platform is a source of truth. And I think people have been grateful. I mean, I, I literally get two to 300 messages a day now from people thanking me for what we did in setting up Real Vision and how it's helped them. So it's been, it's, it's been blown, I've been blown away by it all. Yeah, that's remarkable. There is an interesting... No, I mean, you guys are very compelling and have packaged this stuff together really, really well. Um, and there's definitely probably some things we can learn from from what you guys are doing at The Block. This is more of just, we might not even include this, but it's more of a personal question. When you think about uh, the skew you guys have to the bearish side, we, we kind of grapple with this too, right? Where we cover Bitcoin and crypto markets. So people think that we are all these hyper-aggressive Bitcoin bulls who only think, sleep, and dream Bitcoin. Um, But we do want to engage with those folks who might not be so involved, active, and bullish on the community. How do you kind of um, get maybe folks who aren't those perma bears or who might have a more might have a contrary view on the market than than sort of what you present and, and show that you're unbiased and get them to engage with you? So there's a, there is a inherent problem is we're generally macro. So what that means is we, we're generally top down people. I think that's where we add the most value. Most macro people had realized that the cycle was soon to end. So most macro people had been looking for the downside over the last, since probably 2015, uh, 14, 15, when the dollar shot up. So they've been looking for the end of the cycle. So it's actually very hard to find macro people who are incredibly constructive. Um, hmm. They were more theory on the risk. Why that is, is because if you think of a business cycle, it kind of grinds up for eight years and collapses in a year and a half. So all of the returns that you can get in a year and a half dwarf that of the eight-year grind. 
And so macro has a tendency to hyper-focus on the downside events because all the returns come in one go. Um, and if you look at the returns of macro funds, it pretty much proves that out over time. And even people like Stan Druckenmiller will, will say that. So there is a tendency for that. We then try and offset the fact that most of the macro managers we know were bearish by trying to find people who have constructive bullish arguments. And even when we had, you know, when there was all the mudslinging about Tesla, you know, we had a bunch of Tesla bears on, but we went out of our way to seek Tesla bulls to change that narrative. We've done it with everything. We've tried to find other people who are credible with a good opinion because Real Vision doesn't have an opinion. It's guests do. I think this is a really awesome place to um, wind down the show, but I have one more question, which is when you look at some of those constructive viewpoints for you, and we, we've just talked for 50 minutes about where you think the markets are going, but Raul, what is the one constructive view that you find the most compelling? In terms of what? In terms of you know, a more rosy outcome for the economic picture. Then say a depression or, uh, yeah, further drawdowns. Like what does this market have, or rather, what does this economy have going for it? In the short term, I don't know. In the longer term, I think out of stuff like this comes change, and change is always good. It brings more entrepreneurialism, which is always good. It brings different opportunities for, let's say, the millennial investor who was faced with stocks at all-time highs and valuations, real estate at all-time highs, bonds at all-time low. It's going to offer opportunity. So even though events like this are horrific, it always offers opportunity in the end. And that is a good thing. That is what the business cycle is all about. And that's why it should always be allowed to to play out. Now, obviously, if you've built up so many imbalances, then it's difficult to allow it to, to play out because the whole world stops. But to allow asset prices to adjust and to allow bad competitors to leave the business and opening up where capital flows, I think will be a great thing. So I'm not sure that there is an easy answer to, well, it'll all be over in three months. I think it would be disingenuous of me to say that I think there is a reasonable argument for that. But there is a reasonable argument to say that the economy comes back stronger and better constructed out of the end of this. And I think that would be really important. Raul, I appreciate your honesty and ability to say, I don't know when, when, you, when you don't. It's definitely refreshing. Well, we don't know, right? None of us know. All we're trying to do is apply our best intelligence to a problem that everybody else is trying to apply it to. So some sort of intellectual honesty goes a long way, I think. Yeah, especially during these trying times. I mean, it's hyper important that we check our own biases, we check our shortfalls and, and where we're sort of, where our blind spots are. Raul Pal, founder of Real Vision, thank you so much for coming on the show, walking us through where you see the markets going. And we hope we will talk to you soon. And, and I hope everyone listening at home is staying safe and, and is healthy. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks very much, guys. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much. This podcast is about pushing awareness and inspiring growth in the crypto industry. I can't reiterate enough that if you're a business owner, executive, or active developer in the space, 
I highly suggest checking out BlockSet. BlockSet provides a robust, unified API that provides easy access to multi-chain data. Skip the tedious data normalization process and start building immediately at a fraction of the cost. It's live now and it's on their site for you to explore. Go sign up for a free account at BlockSet.com and start building today.